Welcome to the Inquisitive Vet Podcast. This is Simon speaking and today we are going to be talking about reptile anesthesia and how to get on the right track to becoming an exotic medicine specialist with Dr. Stephen Divers. Steve is a professor of zoological medicine at the University of Georgia. He's a diplomat of the American College of Zoological Medicine, a diplomat at the European College of Zoological Medicine, and a fellow of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons for his work on exotic endoscopy and endosurgery. He is also the scientific editor of the Journal of Herpetological Medicine and Surgery and associate editor of the Journal of Wildlife Medicine. He is also one of the editors for the books Maiders, Reptile and Amphibian Medicine and Surgery and Current Therapy in Reptile Medicine and Surgery. So, without further ado, hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Stephen Divers. Thanks for taking the time um, for me to ask you a few questions. Well, I'm happy to be here. It's my pleasure to try and answer any questions you've got. Fantastic, fantastic. So, a lot of uh, Australians probably haven't heard of you, so it would be really good if you could give us some context, maybe give us some background about your veterinary journey and um, how you became the vet you are today. Right, okay. So, I graduated from the Royal Veterinary College in 94, which is now over 20 years ago, which seems very long. Um, I was one of those students that always had an interest in exotic animals. Uh, I was part of the zoological club, and it was a very small group. There was four of us, I think, in my year. And um, But I graduated in 94. I took a job in uh, small animal, actually mixed practice, and um, but very quickly started to build up an exotic caseload. So I was kind of an interested practitioner. And then after three years, um, I joined Martin Lawton's practice um, in London, who's an exotic specialist. I worked under his tutelage for three years. At that point, I'd already taken my certificate, so then I took my diploma. Um, that was in 2000. 2001, I applied and was granted uh, RCVS specialist status. Um, and then in that same year, I um, moved to the United States and um, in and took a faculty position at the University of Georgia. Um, and then in 2004, I believe, I took the American College of Zoological Medicine uh, diploma to become a specialist in the United States. And so since 2001 onwards, I've been working in sort of academia. But I do like to remind everybody that my first seven years was in private practice, and I think that really helped me to identify the problems and some of the issues that I saw and to kind of galvanize my research interests that I could pursue in academia. So that's, and so that, that's when that's where I've been at the University of Georgia since 2001. And uh, I was promoted from assistant to associate to full professor and um, I, I thoroughly enjoy my job still every day. I keep, I tell my wife that if we win the national lottery, I will still go to work every day. Great, that's good I to hear. I yes, I enjoy it. Can I ask you why you decided to move over to America, having already sort of established yourself in the UK? That is, that is a good question, and um, it was actually due to um, a relationship. And it, was oh, a, it was a lady that uh, convinced me to go transatlantic. Yes, it was. Good reason. Yeah, good reason. Well, so I know that you've done a lot of, um, not just work with academia, but also um, working with some of the um, I guess the outside organisations such as the Galapagos Conservancy and the US Fish and Wildlife Service. Just wondering if you could go through some of the um, projects that you were involved with um, and just what that was all about. So I think as exotic animal veterinarians we are constantly faced with 
peculiar questions or issues and we're very, I think, exotic animal veterinarians are, are a breed that are able to adapt to situations and so, you know, I get, uh, it was actually an issue with, um, in, the, in the Galapagos, uh, I was contacted by one of the um, major vets involved in that project, a guy called Joe Flanagan from Houston Zoo, and he contacted me to ask if it's possible to endoscopically sterilize uh, hybrid giant tortoises. And I said yes. I wasn't really sure if it was possible, but I was not going to pass up a trip to the Galapagos. So um, the whole premise of that project was that there were 40 to 50 hybrid Galapagos tortoises which were useless from a conservation captive breeding perspective. These animals were captive bred, you know, back in the 60s before they appreciated the genetic differences between the islands. So they had 40 to 50 of these animals uh, which were useless from a conservation perspective. Uh, and then they had the island of Pinta, which is where Lonesome George, the last Pinta tortoise, was airlifted from in, in the 1970s. And they had spent all a decade eradicating about 51,000 goats from the island of Pinta, which became decimated because of the goat problem. And so, as a consequence of eradicating the goats, they needed to engineer this ecosystem recovery and they needed a large herbivore, and these large tortoises are the large herbivore in these islands. And so, they create grass pathways through the forest, they are seed dispersers. So, they wanted these giant tortoises sterilized so they couldn't interfere with purebred tortoises that eventually will be placed on that island um, but they wanted them to be able to do their function as a giant tortoise so we went in we sterilized those tortoises um, and they were you know on a boat after recovery steaming north onto the island of Pinta they've been satellite tagged they've been monitored now by ecologists they're doing their job and engineering a recovery of the ecosystem on that island so that was a nice project um, and then uh, Again, U.S. Fish and Wildlife approached me concerning some um, issues involving um, um, gender identification in sturgeon. Was that the project? It was the sturgeon project, was it? You asked about, what was the other one? No, it was actually just about either what you did with um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Oh yeah, US, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so, okay, so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, there's been a few uh, projects. One of the nice ones, I think, was involving this sturgeon, uh, endangered species of sturgeon in the Mississippi River. Sorry, and, just to interrupt, what is a sturgeon? Oh, sorry, a sturgeon is a rather prehistoric looking fish. You may, you may appreciate sturgeon because they're the producers of caviar. Oh, and okay. so yes. these are large freshwater fish and um, because of their value they were fished or because of ecosystem changes they've become endangered. So there was a couple of species of endangered uh, sturgeon in the Mississippi River and so we were, I was asked to be involved to see could we endoscopically identify gender bankside so we'd catch these fish, anesthetize them, look at their gonads, take biopsies and so that was another project where you know there was a good interface between an exotic practitioner with endoscopic skills or surgical skills being utilized for a wildlife project. So that one, it was very cold on the Mississippi River in February, but it was a very nice project. Fantastic. That sort of leads on to my next question, which was about the whole One Health approach. Um, certainly it's heard a lot in uh, the scientific community, um, and you know, use that term all the time. I'm just wondering, how that Nerium sort of fits into those roles, um, or is it something where they sort of invite you and you sort of just have to adapt to the team that's there? 
So, so, so I think that's the important point. One of the important points is that veterinarians are usually the central key figure, right? In, in our day-to-day -day lives, we are yes. the key figure. And when you're dealing with a wildlife project, you have to appreciate that you're just one part of a very large jigsaw puzzle. And I'm not a wildlife veterinarian. Um, there are you know, dedicated wildlife veterinarians looking at epidemiology and pathology, um, looking at disease investigation. My involvement with wildlife has been you know, on an ad hoc basis when there's been a particular endoscopic or surgical skill that's required and then I've been called in to assist with that. Sure. And, but it's a, even so, the veterinarian I think is, a, is an integral part of those wildlife projects, but they are nevertheless often not the most important part. There are many other very important people, ecologists and uh, pathologists and epidemiologists that have very significant key players in those kinds of projects. Sure. So if we um, now I guess direct more towards your sort of area, which is exotic and zoological medicine, I was wondering if you could um, maybe go through what um, what you look for in your residents um, and what sort of qualifications um, you expect them to have. I think the first thing is that it's a very hotly contested uh, program. In fact, all of the residency programs are, and so typically we probably get something in the region of 50 to 90 applications for a residency placement um, from you know a dozen or more countries and uh, we go through those we rank them we're looking for individuals that have already clinical competence so these individuals already have done you know at, at the very least a couple of years in in general practice or a rotating internship um, they've already demonstrated their interest in scholarly activity and publishing, so maybe they've done a research project as a student, presented at a conference, like we've seen several students do at this conference. Um, and then they go on to go to that extra mile and they've published that work in a, in a peer-reviewed journal. So we look for that. Um, we look for very high quality letters of reference, people that can really attest to their work ethic, their interpersonal skills, their team approach, because, and I think this is true, true of all residences, they are very demanding programs, both professionally and psychologically, and you know, so you need someone who's able to adapt and is able to deal with the stresses and the, you know, the long hours, and um, so we try, and we don't always get it right, but we try and, and pick individuals um, that, that sort of fit that, um, those criteria. Um, I, I try to give some feedback to the applicants, so usually for the top sort of 10 applicants, I like to give them an email saying, you've been highly ranked. Um, if you don't make it, you should keep trying because I think you've got the necessary skill sets to, to make it. Then there's the next group who, uh, you know, I can give them some feedback as to what they could do to improve their application and maybe they could try again. And then there's obviously a significant population which, you know, I don't think have the necessary experience or qualifications or they're not, they don't have a sufficient GPA or standing sure. in, in their class to actually be a competitive candidate. And so that might seem harsh, but I'd rather let them know now so they don't then try and chase this for the next few years. But um, that's kind of our general approach. Certainly, um, one thing that I would like to ask is I know that some veterinarians who have sort of come through and they've graduated didn't realise that um, their marks were so important in this sort of, these sorts of decisions and then decide to do postgraduate courses. Is, 
is that enough or if they've already, I know this is a hard question for you, but if they say they do have a low GP, uh, GPA, um, can they find other ways to Absolutely. compensate for that? Absolutely. When, when we're looking at ranking candidates for the residency, you know, we're looking at their letter of intent. Why do you want to take this residency? Why do you want to be a specialist? Um, you know, then we're looking at their CV. You know, if they, they might not have the top marks in the class, but if that individual's been active in extracurricular activities, president or treasurer of the zoological club or the exotics club, if that individual was holding down a part-time job while they were doing their veterinary studies, um, uh, you know, have they published uh, the quality of their letters of reference? So we, you know, we give them points and then we add those points up and then we get a total. So yeah, you might get marked down if you don't have good GPA, but you could certainly make those points up with various other parts of the application. So it's sure. the overall picture that we're looking for. Sure, fair enough. Um, so we take a little bit more, I guess, broader view um, in terms of where you think the exotic and sort of zoological medicine think it's heading. So I think that, um, I think there's going to be some continued dynamic changes in exotic pet medicine particularly. I think the zoos, you know, and the aquaria um, and the wildlife positions, I think are fairly saturated. I mean, those positions are fairly finite. But when it comes to exotic pet medicine, I see a continued increase in the proportion of practices that are going to be seeing exotic pets, whether they be guinea pigs and rabbits or parrots or reptiles. Um, I really do believe that the specialization um, of zoological medicine should be along discipline lines rather than species. Um, it doesn't make as much sense to me to have an avian specialist or a reptile specialist or a small mammal specialist when the practice is advertising and seeing animals from all those groups. Um, so I think we should be defining the specialization for a discipline across species boundaries um, rather than by taxa. I think that's, that's not as ideal. Um, and I put it in the same perspective as, as someone like an anesthesiologist or a surgeon. You can't be an, a, a boarded surgeon and say to 20% of your cases, I'm not a specialist. You can't be an anesthesiologist and say, but I'm not a specialist for 20% of my anesthesia cases. So as an exotic pet veterinarian, it doesn't make any sense to say, I'm not a specialist for 20 or 30% of my caseload. Yes. So I think it's going to be, I think it makes more sense to go discipline based. Um, I do think we're going to see a continued, and we've seen it at this conference today um, and over this week, uh, I think we're going to see a continued refinement and improvement in the quality of care for these animals. And one of the real, I think one of the real areas of focus is to move away from diagnosing, you know, air sac disease in birds or liver disease in rabbits or kidney disease in lizards. I think we need to get to the point where we make histologic diagnoses. So, you know, we find out that, you know, there's three ways to basically, um, to, to diagnose a, a disease definitively, you need to demonstrate a host pathological response and you need to demonstrate the causative agent. So for pathology, you need to either get histopath, cytology, um, and to demonstrate the agent, you need microbiology, parasitology, toxicology, those kind of areas. Paired rising titers would be also definitive, but we have very few specific serologic parameters that we can use in our exotic species, and you have to weigh 
two, three, six weeks or more sometimes, depending if it's a reptile, to get zero conversion. So by that point, your animal's either dead or it's going to be better. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I've pursued endoscopy, because it's a minimally invasive technique to get inside and to get these biopsies for histologic confirmation and also to identify the causative agent. And I think, I don't know, you'll have to ask the other people at this conference, but I think we've been demonstrating the value of that from, from you know, as diverse an area as rabbit rhinitis, you know, through to avian gastrointestinal disease. So for me, it makes a lot of sense to try and get those anti-mortem biopsies. Endoscopy is just one method but it's a very nice, minimally invasive method. So that's kind of where I feel that things could progress greatly. Sure. I think we're also seeing a lot of um, imaging improvements. You know, there's a lot of micro CT techniques that are coming into practice now. Some of these larger practices can afford, you know, these CT machines. Clients are increasingly prepared to pay the additional sure. premiums for those diagnostic imaging. So I just feel like there's a lot that exotic pet medicine can do to capitalize on the advances that have been made in clinical pathology, diagnostic imaging, you know, and other surgical techniques. Um, I wanted to go um, and just talk more now about um, one uh, particular area of exotic medicine, and that's just reptile anesthesia. So maybe if you could go through your general approach to um, anesthesia in the common so if you take the bearded dragon example, if I was going to anesthetize a bearded dragon, um, my preference would be to pre-medicate with uh, midazolam, one to two milligrams per kilogram, and uh, to pre-medicate with either morphine or hydromorphone. Uh, we prefer hydromorphone at about 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Mm -hmm. We would give that pre-med at least an hour or two before induction. So it can often take, you know, it's got to be, able, it takes longer for them to reach level. So I'd probably give it an hour or two at least before we were going to induce. Um, for induction, I think um, I prefer intravenous propofol or intravenous alfaxan. Um, the reason I would probably choose propofol over alfaxan is simply because in the United States, alfaxan has a very short shelf life once you've opened that bottle whereas we have 28-day shelf life on some of the propofol formulations, so it makes it a little bit more cost-effective for us. But I think propofol or alfaxan induction is, is perfectly, perfectly acceptable, either one, and then intubation, and put the animal onto a ventilator. I like to use the um, new SA4, uh, SAV4 ventilator from Vetronics. I know that's available in Australia. I've just bought two of those new units, and they're working very, very well, so I think ventilation's important. And uh, some sort of vascular access. I think if it was a bit of dragon, probably placing an intraosseous catheter is gonna be easier than an intravenous catheter, so I'd probably pop a IO catheter into a tibia. Um, temperature maintenance is important as well, so we would use something like a bear hugger um, or a water circulating blanket to maintain their temperature about 80 to 85 Fahrenheit. You'll have to do the conversion for Celsius. Sure, that's can't remember that's what it fine. is. And for those that only have electrical blankets, that is a not something you would use? Well, you, uh, you know, for a bearded dragon, you could use it, um, but if you get a heavy reptile, you know, like a big monitor lizard or a heavy-bodied snake, I, have, I do get some concerns that you might get some um, uh, overheating and burns. So I think you can use them, but you need to just be careful and cautious about their use. But uh, I don't have any innate objection to them or anything like that. Sure. Um, 
Can you go through some of the big mistakes that you see vets make when it comes to reptile anaesthetics? Um, well, I can tell you some of the big mistakes I've made in reptile anaesthesia over the years. I mean, the, the title of my presentation on reptile anaesthesia at this conference was reptile anaesthesia, and then the subtitle was screw-ups that I have either witnessed or personally made in the last 20 years. I think we all learn valuable lessons from our mistakes. Um, sure. I have you know, miscalculated drug volumes and given 10 times an overdose of propofol yes. uh, to a chameleon that, you know, had to be ventilated for six hours. Made a complete recovery, but you can imagine that's kind of nerve-wracking when you, when you realize that. Um, I think, if I had to think about some of the common mistakes, I think um, uh, insufficient induction, trying to fight with a poorly anesthetized animal to intubate, that could be frustrating. Um, that can cause trauma. Um, I think um, uh, an ability to accurately monitor the animal under anesthesia. Sometimes it's very difficult to tell if that bearded dragon is near death or whether that bearded dragon will run off that table as soon as you touch it with a scalpel blade. And so I think if you can combine, you know, uh, Doppler heart rate uh, evaluations and end tidal capnography evaluations with you know, toe pinch and reflex evaluation. Trying to keep them monitored, I think, is, is a key. And that, that's as much as an art form as it is a science, I think, in some cases. Um, I also think that uh, not putting a big reptile into lateral or dorsal recumbency until you've achieved a surgical plane. You know, you can put a dog, you can induce a dog, a big dog, put it on its back, you know you can get it deeper. You put a big chelonium on its back before it's induced, you may have trouble getting it deep enough because of the ventilation perfusion mismatch. So that's another issue. Um, perioperative fluids, getting a catheter in. Um, we routinely will put in catheter, like from chelonians, jugular catheters. Um, we'll use caudal vein catheters in lizards and large snakes. Um, we actually like central lines now in a lot of our larger chelonians. Yeah, that works well. Um, so vascular access, fluid therapy, three mils per kilo per hour um, during anesthesia, and then recovery. Oh, ventilation, don't overventilate. You need to measure that entire CO2. If it goes below 15 millimeters of mercury, you'll find they'll take a long time to recover because there's no CO2, there's no respiratory stimulation. Sure. So don't overventilate. As soon as you're finished, get them off oxygen, get them onto air, ventilate them until they're breathing regularly, then extubate, but then don't walk away. Sometimes these animals will dip back down into unconsciousness, so you've got to keep going back every five, ten minutes, or have a technician going back every five, ten minutes. I don't, I don't classify recovery until the reptile's spontaneously moving. Okay. So that's my, I guess those are some of the key points that I constantly have to remind myself about to, to try and have the safest anesthetic episode. Sure, great. Um, and, and you've sort of covered this already. Um, and I think the hard thing that I find, anyway, when I do reptile anesthetics is just knowing when it's an emergency, right. that some sort of complication has happened. So You mean you're under like, anesthesia? They're under anesthetic right. already, and then just knowing first the things to look for, for the alarm bells to start going off, right, right. Um, and then what to do about them. Well, and, and you know, we've done some research looking at um, uh, direct blood pressure monitor, uh, monitoring in um, snakes and in lizards. This was a combined project actually with Ryan DeVoe 
uh, and uh, his resident from North Carolina. Now when you look at blood pressure, uh, there are some serious changes and drops in blood pressure. Unfortunately, there's no real practically clinically relevant way of doing that for clinical cases because you're not going to catheterize a, a carotid artery, you know, for every reptile in the study you do. But it's important, I think, to appreciate that hypotension is a significant concern when you're under inhalant anesthetics like sevoflurane or isoflurane. Um, we have found that norepinephrine at 0.4 to 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute can rebound those pressures. And so if, you're, if you feel that you know, you've got an animal with low blood pressure, you're not seeing capillary ooze during your surgery or, or you're concerned, you can certainly think about that. And uh, I think if it's a lizard or a chelonian, making sure you maintain that corneal reflex. Sure. And if you, start, if you start to see you know, pupil dilation, non-responsive to a focal light source, that would indicate that you're too deep, you need to start to line up. Okay. The trouble with, with reptiles, you've got a lot of the lizards and all the snakes where, you know, if they've got a spectacle, you can't elicit a palpebral reflex, you can't elicit a corneal reflex, so you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. But um, trying to maintain those corneal reflexes, try not to abolish completely the vent pinch reflex, um, I think, uh, would be helpful. Another thing that I do is measuring conscious heart rates before you induce them. So if I have a reptile, a lizard, and it's got a conscious heart rate of 80, when I anesthetize it, I start to get nervous if its heart rate drops below 50% of that. That's not to say it can't safely go down to 50%, but I start to get nervous. Okay. Because once you get down to those kind of basal levels of 25 or 30 beats per minute, you could actually have a dead animal and it's just a basal heart rate that continues to beat. Sure. Fantastic. Thanks, thanks a lot for that. Um, I think that's going to be really helpful for some of us. Um, I also wanted to know, I know that sort of we're talking about anesthetics, but I would really like to talk about pain management. Um, and that may well be when they're conscious as well. Um, uh, when you first see, see them when they first come into the clinic. Um, and I'm just wondering what um, what things that you do to um, assess, I don't know if there's some sort of pain assessment system that you use, um, and then sort of the, maybe the more common drugs that you would use to alleviate those pains? Yeah, that's a really difficult thing is to it? do. It is really difficult, and my approach, probably because I'm a man with a very low pain threshold as someone that's had surgery, uh, my approach is to give them the benefit of the doubt. If I think they have a condition which is painful that I would expect to be painful, you know, severe trauma, or in fact, even if I don't, I'm just gonna give them the benefit of the doubt because these analgesics are relatively safe. I don't see a great uh, negative effect on using them. Um, so I will routinely think about, and we're very grateful to the researchers at uh, Wisconsin in the States, Sladke and his group, have published a number of papers looking at analgesia in reptiles. And so now we know that morphine and hydromorphone and tramadol are analgesic in red-eared sliders. So we're gonna extrapolate that to all the chelonia, right? That may not be appropriate, but that's what we have to do. So for the chelonia, we know we got hydro, we got morphine, we got tramadol. We also know that morphine and hydro are gonna be effective in bearded dragons. So we'll extrapolate that to the lizards. Snakes are the enigma at the moment. Um, the only thing that's been shown to be effective in the corn snake was 20 milligrams per kilogram of, of butorphanol. 
and that is a huge dose. So I must admit, I don't use that huge dose, but I do use butorphanol because it's been shown to be effective, whereas morphine was shown to be ineffective. Sure. So they're my opiate choices. I think it's important to preempt. So I'm going to do a painful surgery. That's why I like to use those drugs as my pre-med because I want to get preemptive analgesia. And then the other thing that we'll commonly use, uh, maybe local blocks, uh, lidocaine, uh, bupivacaine blocks, and uh, we'll also use meloxicam. Uh, yes. We did a, a, just a basic pharmacokinetic study in iguanas, and we know that 0.2 mg per kg achieves levels which would be considered analgesic in mammals, although we don't actually know. Um, but uh, we'll use 0.2 mg per kg every 24 to 48 hours. And I think as long as you do that short term, you're not going to run the renal risks that you might do if you were using that dose continuously for weeks or months. So I would get more nervous about those NSAIDs long term. But for a, you know, a three to seven or ten day period after surgery, I think it's they're, they're safe to use. Great. Thanks a lot for that. Um, and that sort of concludes the questions I needed to ask you. Um, so I really thank you for taking the time to um, answer the questions. Um, I'd also like to thank the Unusual and Exotic Pets Group and the Australian Veterinary Association for allowing uh, working with uh, Barbets to get this um, interview happen. Great. Well, I, I need to make a plug. My, okay, my, sure. my colleague, Doug Mader, would kill me if I didn't mention that a lot of this anaesthetic and analgesic work has been summarized in, our, in the new Reptile Medicine and Surgery Current Therapy textbook, which is available from Elsphere. Great. So you should check that out because, like I say, it's all summarized in there. Great. Get that book. All right, then. Perfect. Awesome. Thank Thanks you. a lot for that. No, no. Hopefully that worked out well for you. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I just have a few things to say. Firstly, if you have any feedback for the podcast or any recommendations on how we can improve it, or if you know any potential guest speakers you think would be great on the podcast, please post a comment on iTunes or Stitcher or go to our website at inquisivet.com. That's I-N-Q-U-I-S-I-V-E-T.com. I also need to quickly go through our disclaimer with you. So the Inquisivet podcast is brought to you by Barvest Proprietary Limited. Our podcast publication is for general information purposes only and do not take into account your specific needs, objectives or circumstances. Content is based on the professional opinions of individual doctors and other healthcare professionals who have contributed their content. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests or contributors and are not necessarily those of Barvets. Barvets is not responsible for errors or for opinions expressed in this podcast. By listening and downloading our podcast, you agree not to use our content as medical device to treat any medical condition in animals, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Barvets expressly disclaim any warranties or guarantees expressed or implied and shall not be liable for damages of any kind in connection with the material, information, techniques or procedures set forth in this podcast. This disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Thank you for listening and we'll see you later. Bye.